Good evening again and welcome to Sunday night service here at the Moody Church. We're so glad that you're worshiping with us tonight as we dive into God's word and start a new sermon series tonight in the book of Genesis, studying the life of Noah. Now, if you're like me, there are certain movies that you tend to watch all the time, right? That you've seen many different times. Maybe it's just a movie that you really enjoy or it helps put you in a good mood, so you put it on periodically. Or maybe if you're like me, there's certain movies that are just around the holidays or something. You're like, oh, I want to watch that movie again. When you see a movie that you're familiar with, that you've seen before, a couple things tend to happen. One either is you can easily be distracted. It's easy to pull out your phone, to start talking to someone else, to go do something else because you already know the gist of the story. But if you stop and you still focus in on the story, instead of being distracted because you're familiar with the overall theme of it, when you focus in, you actually catch things that, were ne- that you never noticed before. This happened to me a few weeks ago uh, when Chad Mc, Chadwick Boseman excuse me, passed away. My wife and I watched The Black Panther, which we had seen many times before. But I watched it and there were certain things in the movie because I was watching it closely. I'm like, oh, I, I never caught that. I never saw that before. Now, I say that because when I tell you that we're going to be studying the life of Noah... For most of us, especially if we've spent much time in church, we think Noah, the ark, the flood, rainbows, I got it. I know this story. I don't really need to pay attention for the next month because I already know the story of what's happening here. But I want to encourage you, as I've already noticed as I began to prepare the messages for this series, that there are so many deep nuggets and so much truth in this text, things that I have missed before, to really take this opportunity to lean in and to study this passage anew. Maybe you're familiar with it, but there will be things about it that you can still learn and that God can still teach us with. And so Genesis chapter 6 is where we're going to be starting tonight as we look at the life of Noah. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are the stories of how God created the world. All that we see in God created mankind is his special creation in the image of God. But in Genesis 3 is when sin entered into the world and Adam and Eve fell as a result of sin. In Genesis 4, we see the consequences of their sin with Cain and Abel and the conflict that they had. And then in Genesis chapter 5, which lists the genealogy of Adam, we see after each one and so and so died as God had promised because of the consequences of sin. And that leads us up to Genesis chapter 6, where we find ourselves tonight. Genesis chapter 6, starting at verse 9. It says this, These are the generations of Noah. This is a formula on how the book of Genesis kind of divides it up. So it starts the story of Noah with this, the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Now in Noah's description here, as we are introduced to him, is a threefold description really. First is that Noah is seen as a righteous man. This word righteous, it's the first time in scripture that it is used. And it's significant for the story as we see even in chapter 7 verse 1, that it is again commented on Noah's character that he is a righteous man. 
Scripture looks back at Noah and sees him for his righteousness. In Ezekiel chapter 14, Noah is seen along with Daniel and Job as models of righteousness, which the people should look up to. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 5, Noah is seen as one who is a herald or a preacher of righteousness. By commenting on Noah's righteousness, it's both his moral conduct, but it's also the right standing that he has before God. In scripture, when someone is seen as righteous, it doesn't just mean that they are moral, but that they have a bright and a proper relationship with God. So Noah is righteous. Also, Noah is blameless. He's blameless. These two words, actually righteous and blameless, also appear in their description of Job in the book of Job. This idea of blameless is the same word that would be later used in the Old Testament of a sacrifice that was without blemish. When calling Noah blameless here, the scripture isn't saying that Noah was perfect, right? It's not saying that Noah was without sin, but that in his conduct, he was separate from the wickedness around him, that his life was distinctly seen as different. The third characteristic that Noah has here is that he walked with God. This is echoes of what was said in chapter 5 about Enoch, that Enoch walked with God and now Noah walked with God. It also is reminiscent of Adam who walked with God in the garden. It's connotative again of a relationship that Noah had with the living God. So here's this picture of a man, righteous, blameless, walking with God. But now we get the picture of the world in which Noah lived. Chapter 6, verse 11 says this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Noah lived in a wicked world. It was filled with violence. It was corrupt. And these two verses are summarizing back the passages that came right before this in chapter 6 as it looked on the corruption of the earth. In chapter 6, it says this in verse 5, right before the passage. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice almost the redundancy there. Every intention, only evil continually. This is a wicked world in which Noah lived. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So if you look back here at verse 11 and 12 again, we see this idea here in scripture of God looking down. It even says there before that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord that Noah did. And then when God sees, it says that we, God sights that the earth was corrupt and God saw the earth. Then as we dive into this passage on Noah, we're going to look at three characteristics of a gracious God. Three characteristics of a gracious God that we see in this story tonight. And the first characteristic of a gracious God is this, is that God is a God who sees. God is a God who sees. He sees Noah and then he sees 
the wickedness of the world around him as well. See, nothing escapes the sight of God, whether that would be good or whether that would be evil. Nothing escapes God's sight. He sees not only the outward things, but it talks here about how he sees even right into the hearts of mankind, that God is a God who sees us. It's a reminder to us that there is no such thing as a secret sin, that God sees down to the core of who we are and we cannot hide ourselves from him. The fact that God sees the world, that he sees the righteousness and he sees the wickedness of the world is a motivation for us to continue to follow God even when the world around us is wicked. That even when we are surrounded by wickedness in the world, that it shouldn't be cause for us to give up or to to slack off on how we live our lives, to adopt our lives, to fit in with the wickedness around us, but to stand out and to live righteous lives, even in the wickedness around us, if for no other reason than this, that God still sees us and he sees how we are living our lives. See, there's, I'm sure, been times in your life where good behavior, good work that you've done has been seen, it's been noticed. Maybe you remember a time in school where you did something, where the teacher called you out in a good way and said, hey, look at how good you have done on this project. Everyone else, you should aim to be like this. Perhaps at work, you've had a boss who acknowledged you for the work that you've done. And being seen by others is motivation to continue and to pursue the excellence that we have already done. Sometimes it it can be hard in the world because it's filled oftentimes with wickedness and violence and corruption. Just as Noah had back then, so our world today, it seems at times is wicked, isn't it? But when we remind ourselves that God sees us, it's motivation to follow him. Your faithfulness to God is not unnoticed by God. Your faithfulness to him through the circumstances and difficulties of life is not unnoticed by him. He sees you. He sees you and he knows your hearts and he sees your righteous deeds even in the midst of a wicked world. And so it's motivation to follow after him. But God seeing us is a theme that we find here early on in the book of Genesis. It's constantly reinforcing this idea. And why is that, that God is always talked about this way, especially at the beginning of scripture in Genesis? I mean, with Adam and Eve, they sin and it's clear that God has seen their sin when he comes down and he visits with them. He knows what they have done. With Cain, when he kills Abel in Genesis chapter 4, God knows the crime that he has committed. He has seen it when he comes and visits him. In fact, in the book of Genesis, in all of scripture, the first time that God is named by someone is in Genesis chapter 16, when Hagar has been cast out, but she's visited by an angel of the Lord. And she says, you are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. Why is this such a prominent theme here early in scripture? It's because of this. The intimate involvement in God's creation is one of the things that sets apart the God of the Bible from all of the other gods of this world. The intimate involvement in creation is one of the things that set apart the God of scripture from all the other gods of their time. 
See, there were other stories and origins of how the world began and things like that. But the uniqueness of the God of the Bible, the God of scripture is that he doesn't just create as in he's winding it up and then he just sits back and he lets it go on without any involvement from him. But God creates, yes, but then God is intimately involved and aware of all that is going on in our world. And just as God sees back then, he saw Noah and he saw the wickedness of the world. God sees us today. In the midst of the busyness of our lives, the chaos, the change that the last several months has had for most, if not all of us. I just want to remind you today that God sees where you're at. He sees not just the outside of you, but he sees your heart. He knows the unique challenges that you're facing. God knows the pain in your life. He knows the questions you have. God sees you in the midst of all that's going on. He's a God who not only has created the world and all we see, but he's a God who sees us and is intimately involved with the creation that he has made. So God sees Noah, a righteous, blameless man who walks with him. And God also sees the wickedness of this world. So it continues in verse 13. It says this, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself then an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. And so God gives instructions to Noah. He says, I am going to destroy the world. I'm going to destroy all flesh, but I want to save you. And this is how I'm going to save you. And he saves him through first. He says, you need to build an ark or a structure that will then save Noah and his family from the flood that is to come. It's interesting here that this word, ark, which is used many times in these four chapters, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, is only used one other time in scripture. And that's actually in Exodus chapter 2, when a small young child is placed in a basket that is placed amongst the river and a baby is placed in there to save him. And if you know the story of Exodus, you know that that baby turns out to be the leader Moses, who will lead his people out of slavery in Egypt, God's people, into the promised land. Both Noah and Moses enter into an ark, although certainly different, right? But both are delivered from the water by God's grace to inaugurate a new era of God's working amongst his people. He's to build this ark of gopher wood. It's the only time the word occurs in scripture. We're not really sure exactly what this is referring to. Most scholars believe that it's probably something um, like pine or cypress, possibly the trees that, that he was to use. And specific dimensions are given here to know on how he is to build it. If our understanding is correct and a cubit is 18 inches approximately, then this structure would be 450 feet long. So... You could think one and a half football field. So it's, it's a long structure, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. And God says, you are to build this to save you and your family. He continues the instructions in verse 16. 
He says this, make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now it's common when you study this story, when you study the the flood account here in in the, the book of Genesis, that a question often comes up. Okay, was the flood a universal flood? Did it cover all of the world or did it cover all of kind of Noah's known world? We don't have time to go into the exact arguments of all the the complex things that we could argue, but the straightforward reading of the text is this, that God indeed did destroy and the flood did indeed cover the whole world. Notice just the language just here in verse 17 that's used. I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. This word all in Hebrew means all. This word everything in the Old Testament means everything. It's a comprehensive judgment because of the wickedness that was so prevalent upon the earth that God was going to judge the wickedness that he sees and wiped it out and was planning to only save Noah and his family because of their relationship that he had with them. See, God is God who judges wickedness. He judges sin. Yet in the midst of the judgment for sin, salvation is always there to be found. And that's the second characteristic that we see in this passage of a gracious God is this, that God is a God who saves. God is a God who saves. In the midst of the wickedness and the perversion of the world that he had made, God decided that even though he was going to destroy so much of it, he was still going to be the God who saves. And he created a way so that Noah and his family could experience salvation from the judgment to come. True to his promise that he had made to Adam and Eve, the promised one was still to come. And so he would not wipe out all of humanity. But God looked at the wickedness of the world and he decided that he had to judge them because of their sin. See, God is a gracious God, but God's grace and God's justice go hand in hand. God's grace and God's justice go hand in hand. See, a holy God, a perfect God cannot look at sin and leave it unpunished. He cannot look at wickedness and violence and corruption and just leave it unpunished. Because he is holy and just, he must punish sin. See, we have kind of an understanding in our world of what a just punishment looks like. The saying that came to mind to me this week was, was the punishment should fit the crime. Right? The punishment for something should fit the crime. Which is why when we hear of people who have been found guilty of doing awful things, of murder, of of, of horrible things like that, when they are punished by being sent to prison for life, you'll find very few people who want to argue with that. Because the crime is seen as horrible, as heinous, as awful. And so the punishment for that 
should be quite severe. It should be extremely severe because of the extremely horrible crime that has been committed. See, the reality is this. Sometimes when we look at passages like this, where God punishes sin, when we look at other passages throughout scripture of God even condemning people to hell, it can cause us to be uncomfortable. To think, well, why, why would God do that? Why would God destroy all the people on the earth except for a few? Why would God do that? And it, it makes us sometimes upset. It makes us uncomfortable with the punishment that God has for sin. But the reality is this. If we are uncomfortable with the punishment God has for sin, it's because we have not understood the gravity of the crime. If we are uncomfortable with how God punishes sin, it's because we have not understood the extent of the crime that sin and wickedness is before him. See, sin always demands a price to be paid. That it has to because God is a just and a holy God. And when we look at a passage like this, where God decides that that in his justice, he is going to judge the world in this way, rather than shrinking back and saying, well, how could he? Perhaps we should instead reflect on our own lives and our own hearts and saying, instead of how could God condemn all those people, maybe a better question to ask is how could God save people? How could God save people in the midst of all of the wickedness that's going on. See, the price for sin will be paid for each of us. The price for my sin, the price for your sin, it will be paid. We are sinners. We are wicked beings, each and every one of us. And when we look at the severity of punishment for sin, it should always cause those of us who are followers of Jesus to marvel in the cross. When we look at how severely sin is punished, it should cause us to marvel at the cross because for you and for me who are followers of Jesus Christ, it's on the cross where the punishment for our sin is placed fully on Jesus Christ. He bears our sin and he bears the wrath of God, the punishment for our sin in himself on our behalf. And when we see stories like this, that show that God is a God who saves people, yet he still punishes sin. It should remind us of how great the salvation we have is because we deserve to receive the punishment for our sin, for our wickedness, yet Jesus did it for us. See, God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of grace, a God of mercy. His salvation for Noah and his salvation for you and for me isn't because of anything we've done. It's not because of how good we are, but it's because of his initiative. He moves towards Noah. He tells Noah, okay, this is how you are to be saved. In the same way, when we receive faith, it's because God moves towards us. His grace is giving us something we do not deserve. God is a gracious God. And when he saves us, it is all because of his grace that saves us. And it's because of his grace that he moved even to save Noah. Verse 18, he continues in his conversation with Noah. And he says this, but I will establish 
my covenant with you. Notice he's establishing. So the idea is that God has already been a God who has made a covenant with his creation, with his people, and he is continuing this covenant with them. He says this, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kind of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive and take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. The third characteristic of a gracious God that we see in this passage is this, that God is a God who secures. God is a God who secures his people in relationship with him. It says there in verse 18 that God made a covenant or established his covenant with Noah. God is a covenant-making God, a promise-making and a promise-keeping God to us. This is one of the first of many instances throughout scripture of God being faithful and promising to be faithful and proving himself to be faithful to the covenants that he has made. In fact, the prophets look back on this story and say, look at how God has been faithful to Noah and the covenant he made, and he'll be faithful to the covenant that he makes to us. Isaiah chapter 54 says this, starting at verse nine, this is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. See, the prophet looked at this, the whole story of Noah and said, look, God is a God who keeps his covenants. And now we can still remember that God is a God who keeps his promises and his covenant to us. God is faithful in keeping his promises. And because we serve a God who's faithful in keeping his promises to us, then it gives us a profound sense of security in our relationship with him. See, as a follower of Jesus, your security in your relationship with God is based on not how you do, not on how you feel, but on the promises of God and his ability to keep them. See, our security lies not in the confidence of our abilities to carry anything out, but in the character of God. Our security lies not in the confidence of our abilities, but in the character of God. God is a God who secures his people. He makes covenant relationship with them and he promises that he will keep them. And in that, the people of God can find utmost security. We can look back at the Bible and see God is a faithful God. We can look back at our lives and we can see that God is a faithful God. So what is our response when we see the security that comes in, in being in a promised relationship with God? What should our response as the people of God be? 
Well, look at what Noah's response was in verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Our response when we realize the relationship we have with God is one of obedience. It's interesting in this passage that we don't really get a lot of inside details from Noah's perspective. We don't really get anything that Noah says. We don't get what Noah thinks. We don't have any conversation that Noah had with his wife or his sons or his son's wives as he went out and then started constructing and building this. We don't know the feedback that he was hearing from this wicked generation around him, but I think we can only imagine what it must have been like for him to build this around all the wickedness with the reason being that God had told him to do so the insults that probably were thrown his way, maybe the questions that came amongst even his own heart and himself as he built this massive structure. It's not like this was a week-long construction project. But Noah obeyed God. He did all that God commanded him. And when we realize the relationship that God has made with us, the call to those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ is to obey him even when we don't know what God's doing even when we don't see the end result, even when we could be mocked or insulted by the people around us, God's call to us is to obey. In 1886, D.L. Moody, who of course started this church, was doing an evangelism meeting in the town of Boston. And during that meeting, there was a young man who came forward and shared a testimony. This was common in the meetings of that time. And he said this phrase during one of the the testimonies that he was saying. He said this, I'm not quite sure, but I just know two things. I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey. I don't know everything, but I know two things. I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey. The song leader, Daniel Towner, that night heard him say that phrase, sent this phrase to one of his friends who was a pastor who wrote then the well-known hymn that many of us know today, the song called Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I just love that phrase that that young man said. I'm not quite sure because sometimes in life we may not be quite sure. I doubt that Noah was entirely sure of everything that God said. He's like, wait, what? He probably had questions. He probably had a lot of pressure on him from around. Maybe he even had pressure from within himself. But he trusted God and he obeyed. So tonight the challenge to us is we think of the fact that we have a relationship with God. If God has made us secure in him because his promises to us are unfailing, what should our response be? What's to trust in what God says? And it's to prove that we in fact do trust him by living a life of obedience. See, obedience is easy when it makes sense, when we see exactly how it will play out. But for Noah, I imagine obedience was hard. It was challenging. It took courage. And maybe where you find yourself tonight, obeying God isn't easy. It's challenging. It's hard. It's taking you into the unknown of life. You may not see the total outcome of what obedience to God looks like. But whatever you're facing tonight, whatever you're facing in the week ahead of you, I just want to challenge you with this, that our trust in God is displayed by the extent of our obedience to God. And we're, as followers of Jesus, called not just to trust in him, 
but to obey him as well. God, we thank you that you are a gracious God. You are a God who sees us, a God who saves us, and a God who secures us in relationship with you. God, may we respond to your grace by trusting you and then living a life of obedience, fully surrendering ourselves to whatever you would have for us, even in challenging and difficult times. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.